0: Coming up on episode 44 of the Up Full Life Podcast.
1: And it's just mesmerizing. It's like, uh, you know, he looks like he's possessed. So you're like, what is going on? You know, like, how how is this man feeling this music like this? Man, I'm studi- I remember just studying the drummer. Like, what what is the drummer doing? Like, what's he doing with his kick drum? Like, what's happening here, you know? And just, like, literally being like mouth open jaw dropping like what this is the most incredible thing i've ever seen
2: i'm a bozo Oh, yeah? yeah i thought you had to... you recognize i like that
0: Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 44, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. 44 at your door. We are so grateful. You are tuning in.
2: I'm Almanac. The teacher they call me that. Breaking them, seeing graffiti and DJ and reboxing fashion and language and knowledge and trading. I'm all of that. Why cause a rappers are falling flats? So Why called the whale and he called me back? He asked me to come up with all the facts. So I'ma get down with the water at. Up in the woods, puffing the good, spitting and living the way that I should. Eating the minerals, spitting the spiritual. Big up the general, all in the hood. Culture. Let me indulge you, no kidding, I'm here to adulture. Spittin' the facts, MC and the rap. I'm bringing it back the way I supposed to. trees talking, the breeze walking, MCs are Hip hop, 1520 century, the boom bap started on this block. So, what's a color? What's a race? What's the other? What's a face? When it's time to spit the roar for sure, you better wrap your space. Hip hop demands no less. Wherever you are, be the best. Suburban, swerving, rural, urban. Grab the mic and beat your chest. No need to stress. East to West, hip hop, it turns the lights on. Yo, Jackson Wayland, turn your mic on. Worldwide, what's, 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 what's good? We bumping hip hop. the city from the
0: that's episode 42, guest Jackson Whalen with very special guest, the legend KRS-One from the Woods Remix. From
2: people to pool, from urban to rural, I battle and duel, I'm blowing a bugle, cause some are not used to, the way I refuse to sell out to the cuckoo, the way they abuse you. This is the teacher, man, open your pupils, steaming hot, baking your noodle, if you don't know, you can check me on Google, you're whaling, do you? Yo, I'm from where the fall. At, collabing with the god of rap with farmers and the tourists in the where
0: i'm performing had to give you all a taste because we talked about that on the episode a few weeks ago shout out my man jackson whalen big up large up krs1 you can check out the premiere piece i put out on LiveForLiveMusic.com. shout out live for live music Should have some uh, promo on the podcast coming on liveforlivemusic.com real soon. Maybe right as you're hearing this. And uh, just appreciate everybody rallying together. Support independent music and positive hip-hop. Also want to let folks know I dropped a feature piece on Ryan Her and Jesse Hendrix's Cusp remixes record with Random Rab and Moon Tricks' Scott Nice. You can find that on live for live music or UpForLife.com. So, shout out Ryan, her Jesse Hendricks, and the Nevada City family.
2: It's a way of life, man. This is understood, but well, we know where it started at. Here, yeah, what's good? We're hip hop from the city to the woods, from the street corner to your rural neighborhood. It's a way of life, man.
3: some foo-foo in your boo-boo, baby.
0: Indeedy. Wanted to let folks know some exciting news here in the Up for Life podcast. And for your boy, uh, you know, friend of the show, friend of the fam, Eric Krasno has the Plus One podcast. I've mentioned it a time or two. And he's obviously been a popular guest on this podcast some time ago. And he's rolling out bonus episodes called The Guest List on Osiris. So I am the co-host of at least the first two episodes. We already put out the episode one, the pilot app, which is Kraz and I just chopping it up about his pod and music journalism. And of course, we get into uh, his most popular podcast, which was the John Mayer episode. And we talk about a whole lot of stuff. I don't want to spoil it. You got to sign up through Osiris Pod uh small nominal fee i think maybe five bucks a month or something so if you're so inclined you want to hear me and kraz chop it up about mayor and eventually uh quest love which we've already recorded some some cool conversations and then uh we have some other stuff in the works that uh not at liberty to divulge just yet but it's pretty big and pretty dope so y'all will be the first to know in that regard also, want to remember uh, to remind y'all to please rate and review the Up Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or your pod platform of choice. It goes a long way with the algorithms, channeling new listeners and attention in this direction, and we appreciate that. Thanks to everybody who has indeed left, really beautiful reviews on the itunes page really warms my heart super grateful you can email me directly b.gets at upfullife.com i love all the feedback give thanks b.gets at upfullife.com shoot me an email let me know what time it is what you want to hear what you love what you don't speaking of what we love you're hearing uh blast off lettuce live from swanee rising last week with krasno in the mix he played the whole second set day two uh with the boys it was a family reunion he also did his Kras uh chapter two project with deitch and nigel and chris laughlin and actually chris laughlin the bassist is playing on this blast off along with Kras and the lettuce boys so got a taste of that and lastly, you know, I always got to make sure to plug the Patreon. Patreon.com backslash life. I'm always throwing up music, mixes, cool shit there. You get stickers. Eventually, I myself will roll out some bonus podcasts. But for now, I'm just trying to drum up some support. If you like what I do and you want to support me as a music journalist, as a podcaster, whatever it is, uh, I promise to reciprocate in many ways patreon.com backslash upfullife let's hear a little bit of this blast off
3: Hump and slick rick rhyme from the nasal palate. Nas rhymes from the back of his throat. Biggie is a swinger. He swings like a horn player over jazz. B-I-G-P-O P P A. No info for the D E A. He put more emphasis on the uh-uh uh uh-uh uh uh-uh, uh 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 uh-uh. he's just spelling his name. But the flow, <sighs> vicious. Pac, on the other hand, I think. Tupac pulled from Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. I don't know when it is that we're going to make it to the mountaintop. But one day all the children will be able to play together. All the children. all the, It's like pouring those words out because you mean it. And that's why, you know, I never had a father figure. But I was raised by the thugs and the drug dealers. That's why I love niggas. That singing that Pac was doing. In his-
0: Shout out and hat tip to DJ Maceo of De La Soul for that undisclosed clip of Shock G of Digital Underground.
4: Now
3: as the record spins around, you recognize this sound, well it's the underground, you know that we're down with what you like, with what you like. And though we're usually on a serious tip, check it out. Tonight we're gonna flip and trip and let it all hang out tonight. We're We're gonna gonna say say what what we like. It's yo yo. We wanna know how many people in the flow. Will I just let yourselves go and do what you like? What's the night tonight? Just eat food. Try not to be cruel. Kill the attitude.
0: I was gonna just get right into the interview, but uh shortly after I recorded that last segment, couple days ago got word of the passing of shock g of digital underground now there's been a ton of musicians passing over the past year and a half for a variety of reasons and most recently uh, the world was really uh devastated by the death of dmx And then Black Rob shortly thereafter. A few months back, it was MF Doom. But I really wanted to take a few minutes and give Shock G his propers. Uh, Most people are well aware of Shock G and Digital Underground from the timeless party jam, The Humpty Dance, and Shock's clownish alter ego, Humpty Hump. He's also really well known for being the guy that put Tupac on back in the day as a roadie and then a dancer with Digital Underground then gave him a verse on same song from the Nothing But Trouble soundtrack before Tupac went on to probably some of the biggest stardom hip-hop music I've ever seen. And Shock recognized that in a young Tupac, the Panther lineage here in the Bay Area because Digital Underground was... a Initially on some black power shit, but then Public Enemy blew up. And then uh, they were kind of some psychedelic vibes. And De La Soul, their label mates on Tommy Boy blew up. And this was uh, very deftly stated by Justin Sales on his article on The Ringer. But yeah, so Shock kind of just figured out a way to uh, introduce Digital Underground as all of the things psychedelic funk black power and party jams and um it was digital underground that was one of the first hip-hop groups to reach me as a youngster in cherry hill new jersey watching the yo mtv rap show and seeing the do what you like video and of course humpty dance same song kiss you back so many jams And of course, Shock was a producer for many artists, not the least of which Tupac's I Get Around, uh, which is probably the most joyful song you'd ever hear from Tupac in his short time on earth. And Shock G's legacy stretches just beyond the Humpty Dance or Tupac I Get Around um, or the Humpty Hump Nose and Glasses. He was. Just a bottomless well of musicianship. He taught himself how to play the piano by sneaking into college campuses and hotels, um, and he was an ardent uh, student of the Mothership. Um, he linked up with Chopmaster J back in the day, and they basically just got busy sampling lots of P-Funk. Eventually, folding in, you know, Money B and Schmoovy Schmoove on the vocals and dj fuse but shock was always the visionary behind digital underground and he liked to uh basically say brought the bridging the gap between prince and hip-hop and again uh, justin sales pointed out that back then two live crew was pumping out hits That, quote, turned women into two-dimensional sex objects, while Digital Underground's staunchly pro-female pleasure stance felt downright revolutionary. And what also felt revolutionary is how Digital Underground connected the psychedelic music worlds of the Bay Area. Now, it's well known that the Grateful Dead were, you know, playing fundraisers for the Black Panthers here in Oakland in the... Late sixties, early seventies, and there was always a connection between the cultures, if not overt, certainly covert. Um, and Shock g liked to see P Funk as in essence, quote, the grateful dead of the black world. He said this in Check the Technique. Great book, check it out. Quote Their concerts were more like rituals. And and then I was having this discussion with my mom actually she's out here visiting me and my fiance in the bay and we were driving to terrapin crossroads to see phil lesh with eric krasno shameless plug check out my article on the experience on live for live music but we're driving to the show my mom's first show in 15 months our second show uh and i'm explaining to my mom the uh, significance of what we're about to do and the outsized influence of the Grateful Dead in my own life, and we're listening to Alan Toussaint on the jazz festing in place on WWOZ as we're driving up to the show. And at that very moment, Alan Toussaint himself shouts out Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, uh, and then he plays "Get Out of My Life, Woman," his own song that Jerry loved to play with the Garcia band. And then I was also on that same car ride pontificating to my mother about why it was such a seismic loss with Shock G, taking her back to the OMTV Raps days, explaining how hip-hop music was just sort of incorporated into our culture in a way that's almost inexplicable, but better than I could explain it jerry's own daughter miss trixie garcia uh she took the opportunity to post on her own socials a beautiful tribute to shock g quote digital underground is one of the pioneers of hip-hop music and shock g will become legend rest in peace thanks to them for looking out for me as a teenager shock g Smoovie schmoove and tupac all knew who I was and respected the dead scene way back in 1990. Close quote. So, yeah, it just was not lost on me as we traveled to see the patriarch of this whole La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours, Mr. Phil Lesh, play the greatest American songbook to me, my mother, my fiance, here in the Bay Area, back where it all began. Another son of the P, a son of the psychedelic culture. And a pioneer of hip hop, much like Phil Lesh is a pioneer, Shock G is also a pioneer. And uh, I had to step up and give my man his flowers because it's important that we recognize the profound legacy and contributions, not only of Shock G, but of all the progenitors and pioneers of all these art forms music and otherwise as they transition um it's hard not to get numb to all the death and sadness but instead of wallowing in the mire i prefer to shine a light and celebrate and take upwards of i don't know eight nine minutes and wax nostalgic and philosophic about the late great shock g digital underground little bit of kiss you back. I don't want to get in trouble with the uh <laughs> whoever's policing these uh podcasts. A little kiss you back and then we'll get into episode 44. Long live digital underground. Rest in beats. Shock G. Kiss me and i kiss
3: you back. Kiss kiss you back. you with it cause if you with it I'm if kiss me then i'll kiss you back yeah just kiss, kiss me, me then I'll kiss, you back. I'll kiss you back i'll kiss you back now i'm hoping that you hear me because i love it when you hear me and i'm telling you so sincerely that if you kiss me girl i'll kiss you back
0: Cause I really, really, really like... stumbled upon this live acoustic piano unplugged duet between the late greats tupac shakur and shock g what you won't do for love
3: I lay awake tonight because I want to be with you If you were beside me, I playfully kiss you each time I see ya, the feeling gets stronger We sit a bit closer and stare a lot longer uh, Reach for my drink and for a second we touch do not to I I cause I want you that much The situation is a no way, cause he's my best friend But now I'm guilty, I'm falling for his girlfriend It's like a trap that I'm sinking into I wake up sweaty when I'm sleeping cause I'm thinking of you And we make eye contact and I can't hold back Tryna shake it but the feeling comes right back Now I'm confused cause I'm okay. Casanova but you keep cool when you come over What do two by two, make it hard for me to chew. Tell me, you heard me. But I want to do for, for me yeah, love. Yeah, I it. That's 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 right. back yeah. I yeah, Yeah,
4: I'm Far, down to Borky Park, listening to the winds of change. An August summer night.
0: Yes, indeedy. Episode forty-four of the Up Full Life Podcast is honored and privileged to welcome Chris Harford. Now, I gotta say off top, I just was so fulfilled doing this. I can't really explain it. You'll understand it when you listen. It's almost a hundred minutes. I was gonna edit it a little bit, but I'm really not. I'm letting it ride it is just a profound powwow i uh was humbled by how much of an open book chris was given that we'd never spoken before i commented on a post of his once about an article i'd written about a performance he had done back in 2000 and you'll hear all about that in this conversation it was in uh, vermont uh, when i was in college up there but chris is a singer songwriter rock and roll troubadour he started in the game back in the 80s um but he is a bottomless well of music culture and color and he has a number of projects that we discuss and endeavors rabbit holes etc so the short version is i got hip to him through our dear friend sarah mcconnell who i've known for over 20 years and seen shows fish to new orleans to new york city and beyond and she was doing some work with one of chris's projects called blanc du blanc which is a dub reggae syndicate if you will And they made a record called The Blanc Album, which was one of my favorites of this past year. And I did a short feature on it in my year-end project that I do annually. Uh, You can find it on upfullife.com. And uh, that kind of connected me to Chris in the here and now and, of course, recalled that night at Higher Ground in the Halcyon days and thought wow i should really chop it up with chris um he's probably best known uh through chris harford and band of changes which is sort of a revolving door concept which has included everyone from joe russo and scotty metzger robbie seahag dave drywitz dean Wien, kevin salem we talk about all those cats in depth and their musical family and the New Hope roots and the connection with Tom Marshall and Amphibian. We also talk in depth about Blanc du Blanc, the dub reggae project, a little bit about how he got his song remixed by the one and only Lee Scratch Perry, which is what you're hearing in the background. The song that they covered, Wind of Change by the Scorpions, that's like a 20-minute rabbit hole for Chris and I. He's got the record label Soul Selects, we're going to hear a little bit of Leaf of Fall, which is a song that I treasure dearly. Uh, this version features uh, Claude Coleman and Dean Ween, among others. I want to shout out my man Steve Malik, who put me onto this whole world way before I figured it out on my own. Um, thanks, SMB. Love you, brother. Here's Leaf of Fall.
4: On the circle track, all to the sky and back. You and me are the same. We're going back to where.
1: Hey,
5: Chris, it's B. Getz from the Up for Life podcast.
1: Hi, B. Getz.
5: How are we doing today, my friend?
1: I'm doing great, thanks. It's good to hear your voice.
5: Likewise, likewise. And I really am grateful that you're making some time to have this conversation and been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks. So thank you again. Likewise. I wanted to ask, first off, just uh, where am I speaking to you from? I'm here in Oakland, California.
1: I'm in a town called Hopewell, New Jersey. Right on. uh, I'm on a public land, 340 acres, and I'm lying on a hammock. And it's the first warm day of the season, and it feels like things are turning and changing, and Mm there's birds out, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. So I'm also feeling very grateful to be here, and I'm in the ideal setting. Hopefully, Hopefully the wind isn't too loud or anything.
5: You sound great, man, and it sounds idyllic. Um, I'm from New Jersey myself. Originally, I uh, spent most of my childhood in Cherry Hill and Margate, and then uh, spent most of my 20s in Philadelphia. So that's still home for me, although I guess you're more on the New York side of New Jersey than the, than the Philly side or somewhere in the middle. And that's some of the stuff I want to unpack while we talk is a bit of your roots and your journey um, from from then till now. but. Uh, obviously our mutual friend and dear friend of mine, Sarah, uh, hooked me up with one of your latest projects, the Blanc du Blanc, uh, the Blanc album at the end of last year. And it was, as you know, one of my favorite records of the year, uh, for whatever reason during the pandemic, I, I sought some kind of shelter or solace or comfort in reggae music and specifically dub something about, uh, the medicinal spiritual nature of that sound and, and those tones and whatever you want to describe it. Uh, just was very comforting to me during that uncertain time. So naturally the Blanc du Blanc album, uh, like just hit different and was right on time. So if you wouldn't mind, you have such a voluminous catalog. I want to touch on a lot of things, but may we start there.
1: Excellent. Um, let's do it. (laughs) What, uh,
5: prompted you uh obviously whether it's you know the band of changes or any number of projects you've done what prompted you to kind of make a turn towards you know the yard and and make a dub reggae album and, and sounds like a series of records you know at this time in your life or this time in the culture what, what was behind that
1: well i i just found what you said previously so beautiful and so poignant and exactly how I felt in relation to the dub music and what it brought for me over the years, the solace, the warmth, the religiosity, the spiritual nature, the depth, the, uh, subconscious, the groove, the feel, everything about it was sort of over the years, what I gravitated to listening to more and more and more and more. And so, um, finally came to the stage where I just wanted to record some music for myself just to have some fun not even really think about anything so I just started doing that um n- n- you know hopefully it's not too late never too late to try something like that and I really enjoyed the process and it's already been a couple of years already that I'm into it so in terms of making it and um yeah it's just been a really fun explorative thing to do musically and to not focus on the word so much and just the groove and the feel is really just a, a nice a nice change for me personally.
5: Yeah, and, and it comes out in the art, in the document itself. I mean, you know, I did my homework on it uh, when I was, you know, writing about my favorite records and stuff. And I had, to, you know, I, I was actually really surprised to come to know that it wasn't recorded to two-inch tape and was not like your traditional analog dub situation, but sonically, especially, you know, I was lucky to receive a copy on vinyl. Sonically, it, it is really warm and, and offers that sort of tomb, uh, cacophonous kind of, again, like a shelter, whatever you want to say. Uh, how did you guys approach making such an authentically dub record with you know, the 2020 tech, if you will.
1: That's a, I'm so happy that you've noticed that. And um, that was something that was really interested me and was limited by the fact that I was working digitally and we weren't using tape. But um, at Mickey's studio in Lambertville, New Jersey, and that would be a.k.a. Dean Moon studio, and Gabe being the engineer, he has um, a beautiful Neve board And we use tape echo machines like echo plexes and rolling stereo chorus echoes. And so there are tape and it's tape. You hear it. It's in there and a lot of old instruments, keyboards, or, you know, the old synths from the seventies and stuff. So, uh, you you get that as as best you can with the two preamps and everything. Um, but yeah, that was something we had to go for. And then it's, it's a little bit more tedious in the mixing process when you're, You can't have your... I look forward to the day where I can sort out a situation and sit at a mixing board with knobs and faders and and have fun doing it that way. And in my mind, that's what I was doing, but it took more time than one would hope to sit there and do it through a mouse and a keyboard.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting just mentally trying to imagine that because, you know, this music is is, is ancient, it's archaic, it's minimalist. So it's almost like conceptually antithetical to make it with a keyboard and a mouse, yet um, the results, I mean it really, how the sausage is made is less important than how it tastes and I speak from experience that it it slid right into the rotation alongside all the classics uh, that I've been going to for decades.
1: Oh man, that that means the world to me. I, I can I can retire right now hearing that, that you say that, and and the fact that it made one of your year end lists. Like, you know, this is what we dream about when we're making music that someone lis- out there not only listens but digs it. You know.
5: <laughs> yeah, and, and well, you know, I'm glad that uh it fills your heart that way because you know, like a lot of times, especially in this era, like art, I imagine can be kind of thankless and. Maybe like you don't know how it lands short of somebody putting it in a blog or whatever. But that was a big part of why I wanted to talk to you um, was because this record was real medicine for me. And and I imagine it's the case. I gifted a vinyl to a dear friend, this pot farmer dread that I've known for years and has been a major force in my life. And he's like, you know, a reggae head. And I don't think he would have found it he's not necessarily connected into what's happening now as much as the history. So he was I- extremely grateful for the music and it's like, oh, wow, this was made this year. And I was like, yeah, he was just blown away. So yeah, man, wow. how did you put together the, the assembly of musicians? Because I want to touch on your sort of Kevin Bacon factor, how you've worked with so many, you know, of the household names and the sort of jam band diaspora. But with this particular project, it's like really uh, eclectic, Uh, grouping of musicians so uh, take me through how you put that project together
1: well um firstly I wanted to mention in reference to our last point that the one of the reasons why it sounds so good too is because the vinyl runs at 45 and that's a credit to the mastering engineer Scott Anthony so he called it he described it as sounding like jet fuel once it gets placed onto the platter, which I loved. And I think that enhances the sonic quality of it too. So I just wanted to make that point and a shout out to Storybook Sound in Montclair, New Jersey, and Scott Anthony, the mastering engineer, who I think is brilliant um, at what he does. So, and moving on to the musicians, I have been playing in what I call the band of changes. It's gone through different names. As You know, I, I spent, I spent my formative years in a, in a band with, four or five people for many years in Boston and then in England. And when that band broke up, I was given the opportunity to make a major label records. And I hired my high school friends and the friends I had made through that Boston band and even people like Richard Thompson and Loudon Wainwright. And, you know, where I'm from is is a pretty potent pool of creativity between, like you said, equidistantly to Philadelphia, and New York City, and when you when you said where you're from, I don't know if you remember the club, Emerald City, but that Before was...
5: Before my time, but I do know of it well.
1: Oh, man, that place was, you know, you talk about venues and vibes and shows, like, that place was incredible, but anyway, I dive, I digress. Back to the musicians, so, you know, meeting the guys in Ween when they're 17, 18 years old, going to high school with Andrew Weiss and Sim Kane um who are the rhythm section to the Rollins band. And it's always been important to me to, like, when I make these connections and when I was liberated from being in this one band where we lived together in a house like the monkeys and practiced in the basement, you know, it was kind of like all these great people I had met through the years and I loved making music with them. It was such an amazing conversation and each person brought their own thing to it. Even if we're playing the same song, different people might meet for the first time on stage and bring what they bring to the song. I never told anybody, you know, you got to play it like the record or do it like this. It was sort of like you do what you do. And, and so over the years I've been, I've been doing it now for quite a long time. So starting the block album, I'm playing the drums, I'm playing the bass, I'm playing the guitar and the keyboards, and I'm having fun recording with Gabe Monago, who's the, basically the road tech, for ween and Katy Perry. And he's spending the time showing me his 45 collection that he's, Convinced himself it has Jimi Hendrix on it in the early days, and some of which I'm quite sure he could be right, and some I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but that was that would be in between us doing takes of like just laying down things. And I knew I had to move fast because when you're given a chance to go into a nice studio like that, you got to get you do it when you can. So it just sort of evolved, and then it, it occurred to me that I wanted to get my old friend from that Boston band back in the day, Dana Colley, on saxophone, because I knew intuitively that he would know what to do with it so you know this was kind of the first time experimenting sending tracks to people in their home studios rather than doing it all live and he was of course in the band Morphine after Three Colors and to me I call him now like the linchpin of our sound um, because he has such an incredibly warm tone and it's his own thing when you hear it you're like oh he is the Jimmy Hendrix of saxophone um, so he was the first guy I thought of in addition to then like who else, while I was working in the studio, Mickey introduced me to Chuck Treese, and he was like, you know, if you're making dub music, this is the guy you want to you want to have on it." So we had a jam session that evening, and the the, the two or three, the three tracks that he's on, that's us meeting for the first time and jamming, without really even conversing. So those are just like original pieces we came up with, and I was emailing with him earlier today about maybe doing something again. So um, that's one of those beautiful introductions to meeting someone who's legendary and just being like, wow, let's just make some music. And Marco Benevento was an obvious, obvious choice too, because of his vibe and what he hears. I knew he would get it. So it was fun visiting him in his home studio and laying down tracks. And then across town in Woodstock where he lives, is Kevin Salem. And I did a track with him in honoring, uh, Joe Harvard, a great musician and engineer from Boston who ended up in Asbury park, New Jersey. So it's just a long history of playing with a lot of different people. Um, and then the next couple of projects add even more people to that mix, to that pop
5: word right on.
1: Yeah. That was a a long answer. No, that
5: was great. This is what my (laughs) podcast is all about, Chris, for real, The, the nerd stuff and chasing the rabbit holes and connecting the dots. And I have so many, you know, I could, uh, so many ideas spring to mind when you first when you talk about dana collie and like you know moderately familiar with morphine but definitely understand their impact and the imprint that mark and that band left uh not just in boston but you know in music and i and when i hear dana i'm like you know another rabbit hole that you brought up with the whole hendrix thing is a side project i'm working on for a different pod uh which i can't say too much about but it involves uh like that era of hendrix from like the Chitlin circuit through the Cafe Wa performance in 66 and all like chasing those 45s and those different side R&B bands that he was in, et cetera. So, yes.
1: Yeah, so oh, you like, you, pr- you probably have to talk to Gabe then because he's, he's obsessed. It's oh, I would really, love to.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Put super, me in touch.
1: It's, it's, super, it's super fun. Um, you know, it, it, it's just really fun to hear and like imagining the, like you said, that circuit and the journey he must've had, the, the record I made for Elektra in '92, I I entitled the band "The First Rays of the New Rising Sun," after the Hendrix album he was making when he passed. Um, and we got to mix at Electric Ladyland. So Hendrix has always been like the man for me. Yeah, so to hear to hear you're doing that sounds really cool.
5: Yeah, I'll definitely have to check in with you on that project and put me in touch with Gabe. That would be amazing. And I just hear with Dana, it's like you know some of my favorite like uh, horn players are. Uh, in reggae, Dean Frazier, Augustus Pablo, he just like, uh, doesn't ape them in any way, but just really, uh, is a nice homage to that vibe. And then, and then when you bring, uh, Chuck Treese up, I mean, I came up in Philly and, uh, adjacent to the whole like Love Park skate scene. And Chuck is a legend. I mean, from McRad to the Bad Brains to his presence as just an iconic, you know, black skater in Philly, even before Stevie Williams, like there was Chuck Treese. So having him involved is just like a whole nother universe. And then uh, a funny sidebar with Marco is obviously I'm a huge Marco fan. Uh, yeah. I was privileged to get the tip that the duo was doing the duo thing, like the knitting factory tap bar when like, you know, there was like 12 of us in there and, and Marco actually used to, I was in a band, but once upon a time I played music, uh, and I was living in Burlington, Vermont and going to college there. And I had a band and one of my bandmates, roommates was friendly with Marco from Jersey. So Marco would come down and check out our band practice and uh, give up the keyboards. And he'd sit down and play like our band songs. Uh, and then he would move along and go hang somewhere else. And they'd be like, can you do it like Marco? And I you was know, <laughs> like, uh, not exactly guys, but I uh, always had my eye on Marco. He's a great dude. I know him a little bit through the years. So I was stoked to hear. And of course, he's such a sound scientist, a sound designer, uh, really ambitious in the sort of psychedelic nature of sound besides being a virtuoso. So hearing him in the, in the, you know, modus operandi of a dub band is so cool in that regard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you just nailed it on the head as to why I would have someone like him involved just because you don't even have to say anything. You just get it. And then he immediately has all these great ideas and there wasn't enough time in the day to get all the ideas down. Like you could just record with him forever, you know, there's so many toys in the studio and, He just gets the whole thing So um, I look forward to making more music with him And and that being the idea too That if we could ever Find a way to present this live And Marco happens to be around And wants to sit in Like It just makes sense It's like oh yeah You would have You would have that guy on the stage (laughs) He doesn't know He he probably doesn't know that yet But that's (laughs) That's that's my That's my plan Well if you build (laughs) it We
5: will come You know For sure
1: Yeah
5: Yeah Uh, you, You referenced the fertile soil of of where you're from and where you've made music for a long time and you know i have a moderate grasp on that being where i'm from but for the listeners who would be like what is he talking about take me back to like the halcyon days you know whether it's making those records with electra or coming you know together with the Ween boys and uh, scott Metzger and rana and all that stuff just i want to maybe give people a foundation for, like, your your journey before, say, like, uh, you kind of met the Marcos and Joe Russo's of the world?
1: Okay. Well, it starts it starts with my high school band called Random Joe and the Strillards. And we were a four-piece, and we were a really, really good band. Um, and Sean Keenan was the other partner in the songwriting. We all wrote. Um, the drummer Jason Jones and the bass player Jeff Shangle were, were – Uh, a year or two younger than us, and we, we wrote original music and played some covers. We played at the YMCA and the hospital set, and we became a really, like, good band, and Sean had written this song called Mormon Blues, which I think is one of the greatest songs of all time, and hopefully I'll get that out, but it starts there. So we were this great band, you know, breaking up to go to college or whatever and move on, and then um, I knew, I knew in that moment, like music was it, like, this is what I want to do. Uh, and met immediately when I went to school in Connecticut, met the guys that began to span three colors where we ended up in Boston. Um, and from there graduating at Mass Art, where I met Dana Colley. And from there we went to London. Um, and that's in the eighties. So, you know, recording at the car studio, and then, of course, you have, you know, Berklee College of Music, and you have 300,000 college kids there. So there are all these bands. Like, the Boston scene was super fervent in that moment. Um, and what a great, like, training ground to get your wheels on. And then as your band gets more and more popular, you get to take a van and drive to the South by Southwest or, or you know, go play colleges all across the country. You hear on the radio in the Deep South, like, Hank Williams, and you're like, what, what? What song is that? You know, you don't even really know the history yet. And then you, as a songwriter, you're like, wait a minute. I got to go back and listen to Hank Williams and and George Jones and then rediscover how deep Bob Dylan is. And the whole time my childhood, is the, the, the songwriter for me would be Neil Young, you know. Um, and then I saw Bob Marley in high school, and so that was in there and opened up for the English beat. So the reggae was already in my blood, too. Like, wow. And it wasn't until, like, a friend gave me a collection of his 45, like, 12 CDs of his 45 collection that it became the solace that you talked about at the top of this podcast, where you just, you hear something, you're like, wait a minute, like, driving around in my car every day, like, cleaning my house, sometimes painting to it, although mostly I like to paint in silence, but just listening and listening over and over. And then the photographer, Chalky Davies, who took the cover photograph for the special's first album and Elvis Costello, gave me a hard drive of more music I could listen to in a lifetime. So again, it's just this, like, you know much more about the history of it. I'm still discovering and learning it and the, all the games and the importance of all of it. And then to think, to think that somehow, you know, I'm blessed enough to be involved in two recording projects that have Lee Scratch Perry on them kind of like okay i'm i can i can retire now and never do anything else right on <laughs> yeah i want to backtrack for a sec because you
5: kind of just touched on it and i read about it uh in the blanc du blanc media thing uh you saw marley at the spectrum in 79 so uh, i saw my first dead shows at the spectrum i saw my first concert motley Crue, warrant at the spectrum in 89 uh Obviously, tons of Sixers and Flyers games of my youth. But more importantly, I can add you to the list of people I actually know in real life who saw Nesta. Just as little or as right? much as you want to extrapolate on that experience in your life and, you know, whatever you want to share about it. Because that's monumental on a whole nother level.
1: Yeah, I, I, we were bold kids, I guess, because we, we got into the back of my friend's barracuda maybe four of us and went and we were there weren't there weren't that many white people at the show, let alone like kids kind of is what my recollection is. Um but we didn't ever experience any bad vibes or anything. It was just like this is the first time you realize you're you know, what it looks like to be a minority in a situation or something. You're just like, wow, this is overpowering energy and then he came on and it's just mesmerizing. It's like a You know, he looks like he's possessed. So you're like, what is going on? You know, like how, how is this man feeling this music like this? Now I'm studying, I remember just studying the drummer. Like what, what is the drummer doing? Like, what's he doing with his kick drum? Like what's happening here, you know? And just like literally being like mouth open, jaw dropping, like what, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen.
4: Until the philosopher which owed one race superior and another Inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned.
1: his dancing, you know, and it just brought music to a whole nother level. Like it brought the spirituality into something and the purpose and the meaning, you know, hearing him sing the song war or just like, it was just the heaviest, most profound thing I'd ever seen. I was just like, it's still to this day, the best thing I've ever seen. And I've seen Prince who's right up there and I, you know, um, but that show was transcendent. It was like, this is incredible. And and, and, and also the, the love in the room. Like, we didn't get messed with. No one, everyone was cool. Like, it was like, this is, cause going down to Philly from Jersey, you're kind of like, this is scary a little bit. <laughs> I bet. Oh,
5: man, that's amazing. I appreciate you sharing that, man, because like, you think about those transformative musical experiences, especially a person who's made his life in art. Like, you have, um, I had no doubt just reading that tidbit that was something that you know it, the words life-changing are thrown around a little too freely but in this case it's the an understatement and um you know you can hear just all these years later when you put out a authentic dub reggae record you know it's like the you know how dub and reggae reverberates you know the upstroke it's the an echo and like so Blanc du Blanc is the reverberation of that night in the spectrum in seventy
1: nine. Yeah, I mean it made sense too at the time in seventy nine, like why all the punk bands were getting into it, you know, it's like and that's why you could relate to the clash or the police or something. You know, it was like oh of course reggae is the coolest thing that there is, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And you you knew you knew it right then. You were like, This is undeniable
5: music. And you had a brief Dalliance, it sounds like, uh, you know, as the the singer, songwriter, rock and roll troubadour on a major label with Elektra. Um, what was that experience like then? Because obviously the music industry has changed as far as, uh, you know, how it works with labels and radio spins and sound scan and all that. But, but you had uh, that experience as a professional musician. So, you know, was that... A worthwhile experience? Was that a nightmare? What was the electric chapter uh,
1: like? Uh, no, it, it was absolutely worthwhile, des- despite how heartbreaking and fleeting it was. Um, and I'm sure that I joined the group of legions of musicians who were given that, that rare chance to be signed to a major label, and also a label like Electra, which at the time was, you know, as an artist, you're like, that's the label you want to be on, and you have the CEO of the label bringing you into his office that's decorated with artwork that you'd see in museums, you know, Picassos and things like that. And he's got like a cane with a gold, a gold top on it or something. And he's telling you that you, (laughs) you write songs in a long tradition and you can, we're going to take your time building you up. And, you know, we have Tom Waits and Jackson Brown and the doors and, you know, you're just like, what the hell is happening? You know, and we'll let you, not only we're going to sign you and give you a bunch of money, but we'll let you produce it. So I was like, oh, okay, this is crazy. And then, you know, as soon as it all happened and we made the record, that was also at the time when we I think I was among the first artists that didn't get vinyl to come out. It came out on the CD package with the long box, which I thought was really strange, and cassette. And I was so like, oh, man, this doesn't feel like, a, this isn't real. <laughs> Where's the vinyl? To this day, it's coming on 30-year anniversary. I want to get it out on vinyl. I'm, I'm working on that. Um, cause I think it holds up. It's, it's still, as a, as a record, it's, it doesn't sound dated to me anyway. And it, it's the beginning of the picture. You, I think there's like 35 musicians on it at least. Um, there was this band Urban Blight that was big in the city. Their horns are on it. I wish I'd turned them up louder in the mix, but you know, it kind of gives you like a glimpse of everywhere I had been and what I, where I wanted to go kind of, um, as a as a blueprint of what was happening, but it was very fast. And then they gave me money and helped me make a second record, which never came out. And then it was over. It was like everyone was fired, the takeover, the classic story of of you know, here's your chance. And you think you think something's gonna happen, and then it doesn't. So you're like, oh wow. But you can't look at that as a negative. You were just given a bunch of money, and you got to go to Electric Ladyland, and you got to go to Bearsville, and you know, you got to make the record of your dreams. So. And you got Richard Thompson on your album.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of that's awesome and amazing. And like you said, you're a part of a rare breed, even given that shot. And also, I'm sure it informed your your not just your art, but just how you carried it in general moving forward, having had that experience. I checked out a little bit of that First Raise of the New Rising Sun stuff and uh, found up some kind of press release or review that called it a uh, quote, handsome quilts of gentle country rock, simple acoustic soliloquies and raging noise rock storms, which is like something I felt like I could have written. It was on, so <laughs> on the money, you know, and I say that humbly. I'm just saying like, if I was asked to describe what I've come to know just about you as an artist, that I would have said a lot of those things. And I, you know, I think listeners that are hearing this conversation do well to check out, uh, chris harford in the first rays of the new rising sun um but my my experience with you like my introduction to you was a seismic night in my life i don't know i think i commented on some social media post a couple years ago about this but it was uh november 18th 2000 at the higher ground in burlington vermont uh it was a co-bill chris harford band of changes and amphibian which you know I was a, I am still a big fish fan but at the time I was like a fish kid going on tour patchwork pants the whole nine and so the connection to fish with tom is what drew me to higher ground what made the night interesting outside of the music was that I was it was the uh very embryonic stages of me writing stuff about music on the internet which you know took many many years but eventually became my life's work passion vocation whatever you want to call it and this night was really crucial for that because Jambase.com had just started uh, publishing some of my uh, reflections or reviews, if you will. And I happened to be there that night when uh, Trey obviously came out and played music with you guys. Um, so that, that was like a jackpot. I got to write that story. I was like man on the scene. It was a big blueprint for me personally. But musically, it introduced me to you. It introduced me to Metzger. Um, And I, just the collaborative nature, like I, it took me years to understand how profound these relationships were of who was on that stage that night. Um, and, and the, the song that I took home with me and that I still love was Leap of Fall, which, you know, I then found it as like this nine minute epic at the end of one of your records. Um, so I want to talk about all that. I want to talk about that night, those guys, Princeton, New Hope. Um, Anything you want to reflect on, uh, specifically that performance, but also just those guys, those relationships, that music, and and really that song, Leaf of Fall.
1: Wow, that's that's wild. That's wild that you were there. Um, Yeah, so I'm trying to remember that period of my life, like what what phase we're in. Um, But I had a little red schoolhouse outside of Lambertville, New Jersey, in between Lambertville and Hopewell. And Claude Coleman lived up the road in a on a 100-acre tree farm in Hopewell, New Jersey, which I eventually moved in that house as well. Um, So there was a lot of music being made. And um, I had remembered Tom from seeing him around town growing up as a kid and knew some of the people that he knew My brother had gone to the same school that they went to. I went to the public school; they went to the the day school. Um, And I've been hearing about this band, Fish. I think through first through this guy Brad Morrison, who who actually released their first EP. Maybe does that name ring a bell to you? He had a little label, and he they he put out Miracle Legion Records, which were big. I was a big fan of, and we all became friends. He might have managed them or something. And he told me about this band Fish. Um, it took me a while to realize that Trey had gone to school in Princeton. Um, oh, and then that reminds me, I, I was asked to jam with Matt Cohut and Peter Catoni. Um, and I guess I knew them from the town, but those guys had gone to school with Trey and Tom. And in fact, Peter Catoni is in a very early version of jamming or Dud maybe, like, traveled with Trey. It gets, goes pretty deep. And those in the fish scene would know better. And he's, he was one of the two drummers in Amphibian. So um, it kind of started with that, with Matt Collette and, and Peter Catoni and my friend John March, who was, who's become my partner in the record label, the revising of, of the Soul Selects record label that's now releasing the dub stuff. He was getting married, and he, I think he asked me for a good wedding band, and I suggested F-Hole, which was this instrumental trio with Matt Collette and Scott Metzger, a 17-year-old Scott Metzger on guitar, and J.P. Wasiko on drums. Um, and they are the rhythm section on the album Wake, which features that song, Leaf of Fall. There might be a couple of versions out now, but that's the first version that came out. And I wrote that song, Leaf of Fall, in the schoolhouse outside of Lambertville, um the schoolhouse was from the late 1700s tiny little thing and it and this majestic tree out in the backyard and it had an old piano in the house and i think dave drywitz the bass player came by and i recorded the demo on a four track and mickey came over and played like lead on it i have a four track demo of it i should send it to you since you like the song so much
4: Plastic battleship pipe bombs for the human race I am a leaf of fall Burning in color and destiny Unto the soil of mother's earth From where I came I'm Growing from this tree Dreams for my family Stuck up on the circle track Off to the sky and back here saying going back to where we can
1: um and in my mind, I was writing. It's kind of funny. I was in my mind writing a song. I, I was trying to think like Oasis and Wonderwall. I think, if I remember correctly, if it was around that same time. So that's just ridiculous to me when I look back on it.
0: But inspiration somehow, comes from funny places.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's actually accurate or my memory's just messing with me. But somehow that just thought just came to me when I was writing the song. Um. So I go to John March's wedding, and there's I meet Scott Metzger for the first time on the stage. And you know, fast forward to years later, you talk about going to the knitting factory and seeing the duo. Scott was like, Oh, you got to meet these musicians I'm jamming with at the knitting factory. You got to sit in one night. So I came and with my guitar and played with Joe. And it was like, Holy shit, like Joe Russo, like this is incredible. You know, so then that's I started playing with them. And then met with Tom Marshall, who I guess was, had already had Amphibian going. Maybe I think he called at the time we were referring to it like Amphibian 1.0 or 2.0, and I think there's now 4.0 maybe, but we were maybe Amphibian 2.0, and we came in as like a group of musicians with this idea to to write to make music with Tom. And then I was, and Tom brought me to my first Fish shows, Madison Square Garden, I think it was, and buddy, Sarah McConnell, you know, she's like, you know, did you see fish? And once I mentioned that, she immediately realized that I think it was maybe their first time playing there or something. Um, and she, she asked me how many times I'd seen them. I was blown away by how many times she'd seen them, let alone just at Madison Square Garden. But oh yeah, uh, Yeah, it was like a glimpse into this world it was like, Oh my God, these are guys that I've kind of grew up with through association and look at them. They're like selling out Madison Square Garden. This is mind blowing. Um. And and Tom had you know big ambitions. Tom was like, we're gonna open up for you know fish at Madison Square Garden or something on New Year's, and we'll play all these shows, and we'll play like the State Theater in Virginia and Burlington. And we were like, sure, let's give it a try. Let's why not? Like, great. Have <laughs> fun. We're trying a band with two drummers. Uh, did we have three or four guitar players? I think. Um, and Tom was playing some keyboards and. Uh, there's a version of The Wedge that we recorded, I guess.
5: Yeah, you played it that night.
1: Yeah, so we have that. That's on the interweb somewhere, I think. Um, And we we did some recording with that and experimenting mixing, and we took it to my friend Adam Lass's studio, uh, Fireproof in Brooklyn and Red Hook, and worked on it there, I think. Um, And then, yeah, got to have a little run of a bunch of shows. Which was introducing me to like what the jam scene was like. Like, wow, this is, this is wild. I don't know. Like, looking out at all the kids, like yourself and the audience, I think a lot of them were just like, "What is this? Like, this isn't necessarily fish." Or we didn't, we didn't have that magic that could happen to transform a crowd. Like, maybe like the, Joe Russo's almost dead does, or whatever the bands that have that magic have. Like, I think we were just trying to figure it out. Like, oh, how does this go? What? It, let's experiment. Really, we were experimenting. And, and probably learning, too, learning on the spot. But that night when Tr- Trey got up, he took my Strat and, and played with Scott.
5: I wrote about that specifically. Yeah, I,
1: th- I think I remember reading your piece, and I got, someone sent me a photograph of that moment where I think Scott's playing the guitar behind his head or something, I don't know, and Trey's playing my, my Strat, which I don't think he's ever really played. No,
5: he doesn't. That's why I, I put it in the story.
1: That's right. And my strap was really long for him. It's just funny looking. So, um, yeah. And Trey was on, I mean, and I've met him a few times. And he's always very, very kind. And just a nice guy, you know. Um, I wish we could jam together more. <laughs> I know Dana's gotten to play with him when I've gone, gone up. In fact, I ran into Trey. He was mixing one of his solo records at Electric Lady, and I ran into him on the street. And he brought me down to hear some of the mixes. And Dana was on that. He had gone to Vermont to record at the studio. Um, so, yeah, again, like little tie-ins to all these musicians who happen to be from the same area, drinking from the same well or something, you know?
5: Yeah, it's funny because, you know... Uh, and thank you, man. That was a deep response to the to the question. I know it's like a wine-raging question, and you you checked off a whole lot of it, so yeah man it's a deep pull those times and that night I you know I didn't understand any of it as far as the history and the relationships but I sensed just knowing Tom and Trey's relationship and uh that it was going to be something not to miss um but what I didn't realize was like I said just the introduction to all these other musicians Uh, in addition to Leaf of Fall as I reviewed the story I wrote. talked about the guitar stuff and yeah there were three guitarists, then Trey, so at some point four guitars. What was really remarkable about that night, especially the fact that I got to write about it and it kind of put me on the map in some ways for like, oh, you know, man on the scene for this music, is just that I had a lot of blinders on at the time because I was, you know, really into the fish. Um, I still love, like, I had just seen D'Angelo on the Voodoo Tour when you talk about Electric Lady, um, like it wasn't like I was totally naive to other stuff, but shortly after this concert, or actually just before this concert uh, Fish had gone on a hiatus that would last about two years and just finding out about Metzger and, and you and and that whole world that turned into Rana and by extension the duo and Band of Changes was kind of like fluid the whole time with different members and stuff. It just gave us some other stuff to get into, um, which, you know, was important to growth as a music fan and certainly as a music journalist. And, and even though, like, it was Trey that maybe brought you into my own radar, I think for the, the big picture, for the younger fans who, you know, aren't old enough to remember the Electra days or, or that time in your career, I think Joe Russo really uh, is responsible for, uh, you know, just so many people finding out about your music, your songs, he's, you know, you, there's collaborations between you to run the gamut from your projects to his projects. You've even joined dead and company. I think the same night as Jimmy Fallon, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, Joe, it's funny because I was in college in Vermont and my buddy who was a year older than me was going to school at university of Colorado in Boulder. And he, we were back on like Thanksgiving break, I want to say ninety-seven. He gave me the Fat Mama Mamata CD. Uh his name is Ross Kaufman if he happens to be listening. Thanks, Ross. Um and and that put Joe on my radar uh in the Fat Mama era and was a huge fan of those guys into their wetlands era. And then from that the duo and I already knew Marco when he used to like come to our band practices and, and crush it in the jazz farmers days. So it just felt really organic. So then when Joe started to sing your praises about how epic of a songwriter you are and just like as a rock and roll troubadour, um, you know, his integrity, his history, his, his like cachet, you know, is like uh carries a big stick. Um, so I was just curious, you know, you already established how you kind of like found out about him or whatever, but what is your musical relationship with Joe? Like, uh, In terms of the creative process, making records, performing, or just you know, Sergio Russo, the dude.
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, So last night I was around a fire pit in the next town over, Rocky Hill, New Jersey, with two of the original members of Rana and Joe Russo, and it, it, it there's a it happened organically, but a scene around this area. Now, with world-class musicians, including Joe and those guys and um, John Shaw, Stephanie Sanders, um, this group of people, we're all living nearby. And um, Joe and I are going into uh, a relationship where we're going to have a studio. We're going to share a building where he'll have a studio and I'll have a studio. So that gives you an idea of what our relationship is like. And I've convinced him to play some drums on the next Blanc du Blanc album, Regatta du Blanc. Um, and actually, Joe is instrumental in naming the band Blanc du Blanc. I had the name. I, I had created this character that basically was a rapper in my mind named Blanc du Blanc. And when I when I was doing the dub music and I wanted to put it out, he, I, I was fooling around with names like Dubatronic, Chronic, or I didn't know what I was going to call it. And he was like, you already have the name you got to call it Blanc Du Blanc. And this was right before we were about to go on stage as Band of Changes at the Hopewell Theater. I was like, what? Really? And I, like, it, it stayed in my mind. I was like, Blanc Du Blanc, calling it. It didn't even occur to me that Dub was in the name already. That was my friend Ian Everett, who ended up doing the, 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 the font for the logo and did the album artwork. You know, he, he highlighted that. I was like, wow, I didn't even know that. So then, then you know, Joe Russo. Immediately after he says that, he says, "You can call your first album the Blanc album." And then, and then, and then Dave Drywitz chimes in immediately after that. And he's like, "And you can call your second album Regatta du Blanc du Blanc." And I was like, "Okay, that's it right there. That's that's the concept. That's the name. There it is." <laughs> so uh, I'm working on a a way to try to present this live, and my vision. You know, it's pretty grandiose, and it I and I, I envision Blanc du Blanc live. You know, it's this carnival costumes. Is it P Funk in the '70s or is it Mardi Gras or what's happening? You can't really see. You can't see who it is. You're probably music fans will know that that's Joe Russo on the drums, just by the way he plays. But um, it, you know, we're, we're figuring out a way to do that live, and I, I'm I've got. I've got a bunch of musicians, very talented musicians, getting together in the ensuing month to try to figure out hey, could we present this live? And in my dream mind, I'm at some kind of festival somewhere or at some CBD convention and they're, we're playing, you know, the late night Jerry tent or whatever. And <laughs> everyone's had their full day and then they can relax or unwind to this late night, like, jam of some dub music. And see all you know, like this most amazing fish style light show. Like fish has the best light shows, obviously, right? Lasers and light shows, and and the right. characters on stage, and hopefully Marco and Joe would want to fit in, and Scott Metzger because they played that day, and get Dave up on the trumpet or whatever. Just a bunch of people. We have this core band, and it's people. You know, we're 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 laying it down live, and then live, there's no end to the possibilities of what could happen. You know, Robbie seahag Mangano on guitar and Dana Kali and maybe Stuart Bogey on horns and, you know, Chuck Trees. <laughs> Chuck Trees was there, too. Like, my my brain is on fire about how to, the potential that could take place live in that jam setting where you're kind of free to improvise, but uh, you also you have the foundation of all this music we've already created. And Joe, you know, like, I think I mentioned Joe will be on that the Regatta Du Blanc album that comes out in July. And we'll continue to do this as a as something to do for fun. Really, he kind of makes. He's one of the. I don't know if he's making. He's pulling my leg and making fun of me. My 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 reggae obsession. He's already kind of like really still still obsessed with reggae, and I I don't know if he understands that it's not really going to go away for me. It's like something that it's really quite deep, and I I continue. I, I look forward to getting back into band of changes and singer songwritery stuff, and I love I love sitting in with J Rad. I think you referred to them as Dead and Company, but with the Jimmy Fallon thing, it was J Rad and and I, I'm, I'm beginning a that's reputation. What I mean. If I said, yeah, 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 um, I, we're beginning a reputation as, as like sitting in on their encore's doing Neil Young's covers. So I hope to continue that tradition where I get to, I get to live my Neil Young fantasy, Chris Harford and almost crazy horse. That's incredible. I would love to do a whole tour of that. Exactly. getting back into like Chris Hartford singer songwriter and stuff. But in the meantime, I'm having a blast with this alter ego and this character, which I think resonates with like small children. I'm noticing like seven year olds, five year olds really seem to grasp Blanc du Blanc and what it is. And they like it.
5: Oh, that's amazing. I love that. It's connecting with kids. There's so yeah, many, so many, uh, yeah. you know, things that you just dropped that I would love to rabbit holes. I'd love to chase, but one of them, I, I got to do it. Um, Mike Dillon was on the show a few months ago and he went on about Robbie Seahag for a minute. Uh, oh, yeah. I was that's introduced. was so great. Yeah, dude. It was, it was cool because r- shortly after that amphibian show, during like the quote hiatus of fish when we were chasing a bunch of rabbit holes, somebody put me on to well, my buddy Steve Malik, who I played in my high school band with. Uh, he put me on to Sound of Urchin. And then somehow through that, I found Robbie Seahag and I saw him perform once and he was. Insane, insane wizardry on the guitar, uh, unlike anything I'd really heard in a minute or seen performed five feet in front of me. Um, but I haven't really, you know, explored a whole lot of, of his stuff outside of that, other than some tangential connections. But what is your relationship, like, musically or otherwise, with Robbie? Well, yeah.
1: so, one of my missions with this project is that Robbie become the superstar and the world knows it, that he is, because that, like you just said, he is a guitar phenomen- phenomenon, and the people need to know. So, I want him featured front and center. Um, he's on the Wind of Change EP, for instance, and, and is vitally involved in all of the creation of that. Um, but I first met Robbie at, at some sort of Ween fan function in someone's party in their yard, somewhere in Pennsylvania, not far from New Hope. And he was probably 17 or 18 years old and sitting in the yard with a guitar. And it was obvious right then. I was like, what is happening with this young kid? Um, And we stayed friends from that moment. And he eventually started playing gigs with me. Um, And I always knew that he was just the craziest guitar genius. But I happened to be living in Zurich, Switzerland, after I had done a tour in Europe with Joe Russo and Matt Coat and Scott Metzger with a band of changes through a short tour of Europe in, I think, 2006, maybe. And I ended up living in Zurich, Switzerland, for a period of, like, eight or ten months. My daughter, Amanda, was going to school on the other side of the country, on the French-speaking side. And uh, I was in the Swiss-German center of Zurich and went to see this Zappa band with the four original grandmothers of invention in the band, Don Preston... Um and Eric Estrada on bass and Napoleon. Um and I, I don't know, I guess maybe three and the, the drummer was somehow connected, but there was Robbie playing the guitar in the band, the Zappa parts, and the show was like three and a half hours long. And I, I stood right in front of him at this venue, you know, and I'd known Robbie for years already. And although I'd seen Zappa at Princeton Dillon Gym in nineteen seventy two as like a ten year old kid it never, it, it didn't resonate with me like it does with Zappahead. Um, I appreciated it. But to see Robbie do that live for three and a half hours, I, my mind was, again, just shattered to the bone. I was like, what is happening? So the fact that he was capable of doing that, let alone, like, all the other stuff he can do, you know, that just shows you where his brain is. And then, of course, you know, he plays in the, the Goats of the saber tooth Tiger with, with Sean Lennon and Mike Dillon and um I think Mike got him the gig with um uh, what's her name, singer songwriter that I'm spacing on now. Who's,
5: Ricky um, Lee Jones.
1: Ricky Lee Jones, yeah. Like he just did a tour with her. Like so he's recognized as this and he plays many different instruments too with her. Um, so, yeah, that's Robbie. So there's a perfect example of a kid that I've known for a long time and watched watched his trajectory and think to myself like how is this guy not like a superstar like Steve I, level superstar he's beyond me but what can what can we do let's get let's make this happen so despite the fact that he might be behind a mask you will know when you see him you'll be like that is Rob the Seahack
5: <laughs> Definitely, yeah. From your lips to jaw ears, man. The world should know. You sound like my buddy who was trying to convince me to go see him uh, way back when. Just had the same sort of reaction, like, "How is this guy not a guitar god?" So, yeah, man. And 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 you've been next to a Metzger for a long time too. And I think, I mean, Metzger does such an amazing job with J Rad. And of course, I remember him uh, in Rana. Who were like a phenomenon in their own right, if a regional one. Um, but he's such a gifted musician on so many levels—jazz, singer-songwriter, folk stuff—and um, he speaks about you. Yeah, I don't want to make you blush, but uh, I was reading some quotes where it just talks about the profound effect your your <clears throat> you, like you as a musician and you as a songwriter have had on him. What is a uh, anything you want to share about your relationship with Scott, because he's another one. Well, people do know, I think a, a good portion of it isn't within the framework of the J rad thing, which is also obviously a phenomenon and an unstoppable force and a thrill, but it's, it's merely like 10, percent of God's
1: wheelhouse. Right. Right. Yeah. So Scott is, represents someone to me who's like, um, he takes it to the level of family, like that's what this is, when when you're playing with him or you're conversing with him, watch his trajectory and his growth as a human being, not only as a player, because he's constantly reinventing himself and challenging himself and learning more, and just his breadth of knowledge now is so expansive, and I've watched that happen from that 17-year-old kid at the wedding to where he is now in the same way that Mickey Melchiondo I watched him from a 17-year-old like become one of Rolling Stones greatest 100 guitarists and Robbie Caghmangano from 17 to now it's just like these people are my fam these are my brothers my family um and it it takes on a spiritual level because of that because it becomes more than the music it sometimes it becomes life sustaining and vital and we can we can lean on each other with really deep, deep, human, personal stuff, not the relationship I have with Scott. Right on. It goes goes very deep, yeah.
5: I feel it. I feel it, man. Um, Yeah. And I appreciate that. You know, that's part of what makes your career so remarkable is uh, these profound, intimate relationships that you share with uh, just a myriad of, you know, impactful artists, and they all say, you know, uh, glowing and admiration for you. Uh, Like, you know, you don't really hear all the time people profess upon their peers or their friends or their collaborators. So it's clearly reciprocal. And I think that that's, you know, was a big motivating force for why I wanted to chat with you outside of, you know, my appreciation for Blanc to Blanc or Leaf of Fall, just the the depth of the musical and, and familial and spiritual relationships that you share with so many folks. But now I'm going to take a hard left because I think it's going to connect a lot of the dots.
4: I follow my down to listening to the wind of cheer.
5: Uh, wind of Change, right? So before I loved The Dead or Fish or any of the stuff that I'm into, I was I was like a mullet-wearing, the denim jacket having hesher And so Wind of Change uh, is, you know, like an anthem from those days. And uh, I wanted to start with the fact that, or ask, are you aware, did you listen to the podcast about the song?
1: Uh, it's funny you say that. I, uh, Bobby, Bobby Haight, the tour manager for Humphries McGee, told me about the podcast maybe like the day after I had the idea of doing the song, and then that sealed the deal. I was like, well, then I have to do it. And I hadn't listened to the podcast yet, and my girlfriend, Marissa, listened to it. Um, so I started listening to it, and she says it gets really good around episode, four and five where it gets deep into like the managers and stuff but to be to be honest i had didn't finish it because i felt like the, the, the journalist was sort of stringing me along and i already sensed that i had a feeling or maybe i just didn't want to acknowledge that that even could be true and i believed ultimately what i've i don't want to ruin it for people but in my sense i'm thinking klaus the guy who wrote the song will say no that the cia did not write the song that i wrote it but I'm well, wondering. of course. I mean, uh, and I, don't, I, I don't know. Maybe that's why I didn't. I couldn't finish it because I didn't even want to. I didn't want to hear about any other possibility than this guy wrote it with his bandmates.
5: I see. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I believe it or don't believe it. Uh, as a podcaster, I found it entertaining, and yeah, it definitely kind of gets thrown together at the end. And and your prediction is uh, on the, on the money, uh, but but more just the. Uh, it was so strange because, you know, you. Li- I was listening to Joe Russo on a podcast with Eric Krasno talking about what he termed butt rock, but really that, that sort of 80s, like, hairband hard rock thing, um, and that's actually some of the few conversations I've actually had with Joe over the years have been about, like, Iron Maiden, so it's, it's funny uh, that, you know, the connection with all these people you're talking about and then a song like Wind of Change, which is couldn't be further, uh, like, you know, culturally from reggae, uh, which is what makes it such a... I I wasn't sure if it was an ironic take or, like, sheer admiration. Um, And then that's why I asked about the podcast, because that if, if you consider the Cold War ramifications or context, I should say, of the song, especially now, like, where we're living in this, like, whatever political... Uh, cultural climate with the whole, you know, I don't want to get political, but, you know, Russia and, you know, socialism and all these things that are in the zeitgeist uh, in this sort of pandemic time, uh, and then framing Wind of Change uh, as this sort of uh, sociopolitical anthem it's so deep all of a sudden. Forget, like, the, is it a CIA psyop or not? Just the sheer power and, and sort of history and education woven into what was in essence like a hairband power ballad from the Headbangers Ball era. It's such a mindfuck. And then you go and do an EP with Lee Perry. <laughs> interpretations of this song. So I, I want to finish here. I actually want to touch on your visual art too, but but let's get into <laughs> Window Change. Why, how, uh, what are you saying uh if anything by uh giving this song this energy?
1: Well, I guess it it, it it's it starts with the pandemic happening and life getting very strange and um, I get a message via Facebook that there's um, someone who's aware of my music probably through the scene of Ween and knows that I'm a painter and wondered if I had a painting for sale. He happened to be in the area near my hometown. He was passing through. And did I have any paintings for sale? And I did. And I showed him some pictures. And he we agreed to meet in the, in the ShopRite parking lot a couple miles from my home And, you know, we pulled up awkwardly, this is pretty early on in the pandemic, so we pulled up awkwardly, like, a couple of parking spots away from each other, and he was with his friend, um, and he introduced me to her, and he opens up the back trunk of his car, and he's got this, he he buys the painting, and he hands me some cash, and it's slightly awkward, he's like, hey, would you like a painting of mine? And I kind of peeked in, I was like, oh man, really? That's kind of really awkward. Um, and he said, "I want you to have one of these paintings." And I, I so I accepted, graciously accepted one of his paintings. And he's like, "Also take this." And it was a DVD of a documentary of the band Anvil. He's like, "You know the band Anvil?" I'm like, "No, I don't know it." Um, and
5: that is actually realized, a great doc, for the record.
1: <laughs> yeah, it turns out it was because I. It took me several weeks to watch it, but one really late night with my girlfriend Marissa we started watching it she she wanted to avoid it because I don't know for whatever reason it was like I, I don't really want to watch that so I just put it on one night really late we just started we were no, we just we couldn't stop watching it and at the, some point in the movie the band is playing in Russia I think with Scorpions on the bill and she asks me you know I'm like I don't know anything about this band I don't know anything about any of this music really and she was like what what are you talking about like you don't know the Scorpions I'm like no and Maybe she's I think maybe they were playing Rock Me Like a Hurricane. I was like, Okay, I remember that song on the radio. Um, and then she's like, Well what about Wind of Change? I'm like, No, I don't know that song. So I think she paused the movie and had me watch the video on YouTube of Wind of Change And I immediately I immediately heard it as a reggae song because of the groove of it in my mind. And that's just something my mind does. I'm like, Oh, you wouldn't even have to slow that down or speed it up, you just turn the beat around and make it a reggae song. And then I immediately also recognized what a great anthem it was. I was like, wow, that's a pretty deep song. And then it occurred to me, you know, how deep it was just politically, like all those reasons you were saying. And I thought, okay, I'd love to do a cover of that song. And then it wasn't until the next night when we had dinner with Bobby, and he's like, have you heard the podcast? I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to do a cover of that song. And that was the, the fastest turnaround from conception of the idea to doing something to having it done and then out on vinyl took about five months, which to me is crazy because the Blanc album was several years in the making as all the other projects are generally. They just take forever for whatever reason to get them printed and the whole thing. So the idea that this could come out that quickly, and of course it, it needed, we want, our goal was to get it out by the time the election happened and we got it out maybe a week after the inauguration. So we were pretty close, but it feels timely and it, um, and then, you know, the beautiful, the, just being open to something like this, like meeting this kid because he wanted a painting and him handing me the thing, everything was happening sort of very organically and learning about the song. Um, and I knew Joe, I wanted Joe on it cause I knew Joe would understand the Scorpions. And of course he did. And he was like, you know, I I was really fixated on doing it note for note, even, even though I was making it a reggae groove. I wanted it to be note for note. Unlike anything I've ever done, I never wanted to, I don't really care that much. But for some reason, even Robbie was asking me, like, why does this have to be note for note? No one really seemed to understand. Joe didn't really understand. He was like, just make it a reggae. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 it's got to have the drum fill. It's like I was very particular. Um, So he was like, well, if you're being particular, like, that's that's not really the harmony on the, the chorus. You need to get the harmony note right. I tried to get him to sing. I tried to get him to play drums, too, but he was moving his family from New York out here to Jersey, and it was too much going on. I got Dave Butler to play the drums, um, who plays with Marco and who I was recording with earlier today, by the way. But
5: Amazing player also. He, yeah, yeah
1: another another, another guy that's in this local community of our wrecking crew, Muscle Shoals thing that's happening here in Hopewell, New Jersey, but um, I digress against so then, so then, Joe's like, "Look, I can't, I can't quite hit that note." But the guy you need to get is, is, is this kid I I was in a high school band with, Constantine, who was the finalist in the first American Idol. So like, what, what are you talking about? You know. So that, that that was like another thing that could be ironic, you know, getting him to sing background vocals, and then late night, two a.m., seeing Lee Perry. I'd already, I'd been brought to tears because I produced a record called Solid Bronze. At Mickey's Studio, and and they, that label, that album came out on a little label called Schnitzel in the UK, which I had put a record out on too. And how I got to tour with Joe and Scott over there in Europe, but they had a connection to get Lee Perry to do a remix of one of their songs. So I'd already that had already brought me to tears if that had taken place. So I knew it was a possibility that Lee Perry might work on something. But it wasn't until like two or three in the morning, Lee Perry posts on Facebook, like, "Hey, if anyone wants my vocalization or, or any mixing done, you know, send me some tracks." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" So I sent him "Wind of Change," and, you know, you, you I can't you can't make that up. Like, I can't believe it. To this day, I pinch myself. I can't believe that that happened. You know, that's just crazy. That's crazy to me.
5: It's incredible and beautiful and hilarious and serendipitous all the things man that is that is that is really i you know i couldn't figure out where you would be coming from possibly with the wind of change thing which is why i started with the podcast um but the fact i mean, there's so many layers to that like the anvil dock the wean fan you know i sidebar to that is how beautiful how like beautiful and human and organic is the passion that, you know, fans have for bands, you know, few fans, you know, rabid nature rivals that of like a Ween fan. And to seek you this Ween adjacent, you know, cult singer, songwriter of lore out, not for music, but for visual art. And then uh, for this, you know, next layer of wind of change to be born out of that, you know, Strange, beautiful interaction. Um, And then it not even be like he handed you the Scorpions vinyl, but it was, there was going to be another layer and another layer, you know, and it's it's just incredible, man. I love it. Uh, It just makes it. And then the Lee Perry is just like gravy. It's like how, you know, out of bounds is the whole project to begin with the song in that format, how it happened. And then for, you know, a Mount Rushmore reggae producer, the, <laughs> exactly, the dub exactly. icon, you know, like you, you, to be like, yeah, I'll touch that one. It was like, what?
1: <laughs> you can't even, you can't say it any better. I'm so happy that you appreciate this and you get it. And like, that's exactly, that's exactly it. The whole, you know, to, the, the more, the longer I do this, you just open yourself up to these things. And you talk about the human connection, like here was this kid who, yeah, bought, he bought his car from Dean Ween several years earlier and he gave me the painting that had like his cat, a dead, his cat that had recently passed away. It had a cat hair like in the frame somewhere. And I, I later saw the word God, like in the painting that I didn't see when he first gave it to me. Um, and it's just so many levels of so many depths of humanity. And like, I just love it too. I love, I love how it just happened organically, Everything just took place. Robbie Seahag immediately got the concept and assembled the tracks and note for note could play the guitar solo. Um, and then, you know, got Scott Besker on it and John Shaw and other people too. Just, it just happened so beautifully and it's such a collaborative effort that I, it thrills my heart to no end that it took place.
5: I think that it's imperative that you make the time to listen to the pod. Be- only because of you have such a profound, organic, serendipitous connection to the song, um, the band Scorpions, you know, for for better or for worse, they were like uh, two by four, kind of like whack you over the head with horrible sexual innuendos, like hard rock from like maybe like the, the pre Sunset Strip days, right. <laughs> And then, like, you know, I got all wrapped up in, like, that was my first love. Like, I mean, I got Master Puppets on cassette for Hanukkah. I think I was 10 or 11. But whatever, I gravitated towards Motley Crue and and Cinderella. I even, like, met Tom Kiefer from Cinderella in the supermarket because they're a Philly band and he was living in Cherry Hill. So, like, I was really connected to that world. And I stayed up every Saturday night, watched all three hours of Headbangers Ball, recorded it on VHS, rewatched it for the whole week. You know, like, it was my whole identity, like, my passion for music, which is why I'm even talking to you, is born out of that scene when I was, like, coming of age, so.
1: Amazing. I think, and Joe Russo's similar in that way. Yep, like
5: that's too. why we talk about it. My best friend, yeah. Jason Abrams, who I grew up with and went to a lot of these hairband concerts with, any time Joe's project comes to Philly, or did for years, in the pre Rat era, Jason would show up at the show with, like, 10, 20 DVDs, of, like, 80s and 90s hard rock and heavy metal for Joe. You know, yeah. like, it was. Just, he didn't ask for him; He just showed he knew to appreciate him, you know, kind of thing. So it's just, like, where we're from and kind of where I had to, like, fight. Basically, it was, like, my half-sister took me to see The Grateful Dead in 92. That changed everything. <laughs> but I don't want to digress there. I want to just finish up with the wind to change thing to say, if you knew the Scorpions as you do and then you understand, like, the whole you know, meaning for the Moscow Music Peace Festival and us sort of, like, shipping all the hair bands and the hard rockers of the day over to parade this, you know, debauched, just kind of really strange branch of the rock and roll tree to Russia. And then yeah. from that to come this, like, uh, you know, global anthem for for the yeah. changing of the guard. It's really hard to to make that leap, and that's why this this podcast, while I'm not saying it's true or not true, like, it's worth listening to because it, it really gives you an understanding of either it's, it's not Klaus's hand and that is propaganda of CIA or not, or it's an incredible human transformation.
1: Right, and it brings up a lot of interesting questions, and I know that in the podcast it talks about other artists that were used in that way too, Nina Simone or Louis Armstrong. um, So I found all that fascinating. And I do, you know, time and life is moving by so swiftly, I would like to actually finish it because it did bring up all those interesting things. And, um, you know, Joe's love for a band like Kiss or something, it all ties into the thing. I didn't realize how how big that song was in the rest of the world, you know, until I saw the video and then I... Started asking people, and they're like, "Yeah, that song is massive, you know, especially in the rest of the world, let alone America." Because I just missed it, so um, yeah, it is. It is deep, and then and then the idea that it's like a. I don't know if it's because he's German and he's writing in English, but you know the words are a little a little odd. The, the translation are just you know, the the phrasing of them are strange. It's poetic because of that. It's like, oh, this is strange strange use of the language
5: that could be the disconnect between the language or it could be a non-songwriter somebody who lacks the rhythmic pentameter to write in verse such as a suit at a desk uh in some eastern no but i
1: but i I think that they the, the songwriting really belies how brilliant they are and then of course mickey and andrew weiss Gave me the history of the Scorpions and and their psychedelic records from the late sixties, even and like what? Like I, what are you talking about? You know. So there's so much to learn. And then Nicky was like, "Yeah, they went through four guitarists, and these guitarists are all like Robbie C. Agmongano. Like, right. all, They'll all blow your mind. So you you realize the depth of it all. And you know, I wish I could write a song like Rock Me Like a Hurricane. You know. But that's
5: even late era. I mean, that's like '84. You know, like even between the rock. psychedelic roots and that sort of stadium butt rock, they have like you know really pivotal record. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I used to read this encyclopedia of metal by this guy named Martin Popoff, and he would write three pages on on the most obscure and 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 major uh, metal releases for you know over twenty years, and he had a lot of positive things to say about the Scorpions, the band, like late seventies, like before they kind of went global when they were kind of more Judas priest sounding band. Yeah. Um, so, that again makes the whole wind of change thing so remarkable because it's light years from any of that stuff. And I guess that just adds a layer of irony and serendipity to the fact that you found the song the way you did, that you are in no way connected to any of that history, not the scorpions, not the political context, you're wearing a hairband guy. That whole shit maybe blessedly passed you by and you arrived at the song in that obscure, like just a beautifully human way. So, Agreed,
1: agreed. That's
5: it. And and just to, to touch on uh, your painting, because you were selling the painting, and that's what gave birth to the window change thing. But obviously, uh, as I, I was unawares until I pre- prepared uh, this interview, I knew you were a painter only because I had read that. But uh, clicking around a little bit and looking at your site and the media over the years, obviously painting is – been an enormous part of your artistic life and your professional life. So uh, take us back to like, when, when did you find painting and like, what role does it play? I found it interesting, you offhand mentioned you prefer painting in silence.
1: Uh, I, I have been drawing cartoons or illustrations as a little kid. My mom's actually a, quite a talented painter. My dad dabbled in like illustrating a little bit um, just as a hobby. But, and they exposed, exposed us to art And brought us to great museums and stuff um, And my my siblings are pretty artistic as well So I'd always been drawing And then I went When I my, my mom was real keen on me getting a degree And finishing school Even though I was already in a rock and roll band And I'm like, I'm out She's like, look, just get a degree So I ended up going to Mass College of Art In Boston um, And I I I was I took like a color theory class and I wanted to take the painting classes, but I I felt extremely intimidated by the painters and I just was like, I could never do that. I don't know why. I was just like, ah, that's something I can't quite grasp. Um, and I ended up getting into what was called Studio for Interrelated Media, which was basically like performance artists and Spalding Gray and Noam Chomsky would come and talk to the class. And that, in that class, I met Dana Colley. Um, so I kind of used performance art as an excuse to get a degree from college, so a BFA in something, um, but I knew that I always want I would go in and hang out with the painters and watch them, and I I always wanted to try to do it. And then um, my best friend growing up, Jacques Hoffman's family had a collection of Haitian art in their home, and I always loved the simplicity and the outsider art nature of it. I felt like I could relate to like the to to the naivete of it. My mom had these what they call naive folk art from Yugoslavia as well. And I was mesmerized by the colors. And so I just started painting over the years and consequently also had thousands of postage stamps that my father's secretary had saved for me. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I had thousands of these stamps. And I was like, I'm not a real stamp collector. Like, what am I going to do with these things? They're little pieces of art unto themselves. And so I started gluing them onto the canvas or the wood. And I got really into finding, like, I would never buy canvas. I would always pick fine things in the garbage or pieces of wood and just started gluing them and they'd represent leaves of trees or feathers of a bird or bricks of a building. And I've been doing that ever since. And I've been in stamps ever since. People give me their stamp collections. I still have thousands of stamps and I just I just think of it as a it's a great way to um calm my mind. It's like meditation. You know, the music thing, it's definitely with people. I wanna be with people, I wanna work interactively with people. I love working with great engineers and beautiful studios. I love being around musicians who are better than me and just learning from them. And then the painting thing is like, oh, I can quiet down and tap into my subconscious. I, I'm not really, I'm not schooled enough to know technique or anything. I just do it very naively. And it it's um, provided like a peace of mind for me. And then the, the 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 think that people might like to buy them or like it helps me to pay some bills is... It's amazing, And I've, I've done thousands of paintings over the years because of that.
5: Oh, man, that's incredible. I always find it interesting when a musician has a, another form of media, like the late Neil Casal with his photography or whatever. Like, it's just curious to find people's process, and it's always light years away from the other process. Uh, and it sounds like that's the case with you as well. So, yeah, uh, we'll definitely link your website. Uh, in the in the show notes so in addition to your music people can check out at least like digitally view some of the artwork they've made over the years and uh one last oddball question would be the the character you mentioned like the character from Blanc du Blanc and uh um but I wanted to ask about okay so like the Joe Russo birthday video you dressed up as the character that's on the the Cover of the Blanc du Blanc album, and you mentioned it was like a character, like a rapper. But when I looked at that, whatever costume or it's kind of like an art- artistic uh, outfit, whatever you want to call it, uh, I was thinking like, I don't know if you ever saw True Detective, but there was like this occult stuff in the woods out in like Louisiana, just real strange.
1: Oh yeah, it had antlers on it.
5: Yeah. Um, what What is that about? What is that? Character about what is, is the relation to Blanc du Blanc? Is that you? Like in all that stuff? Uh,
1: that, well, I am wearing the costume. If that if that means anything, but I, yeah, that's, I that's it, what I'm asking. I don't want it to be me, but yes, it is me. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it is me in the costume, and uh, I've always been attracted to masks. You know, African masks, and uh, recently, rent discovered. Damsel Frau on Instagram, and you can go check out her work. And it, it occurred to me how beautiful they were, and I wanted to do something like that. I was inspired by that specifically, um, and then realized that there's a whole, you know, obviously a whole tradition of wearing masks and what they symbolize, um, and and using that in performance. And that's sort of where I'm gravitating towards in terms of the costumes to eliminate age and race. and and to create some sort of fantastical world that's providing this music. Um, But, you know, Sarah McConnell pointed out that a lot of people don't know what dub music is, you know, and maybe this can be some sort of vehicle as a way of letting people know what's up. Like, you obviously have done your homework and you've checked it out, but maybe a lot of people don't know that. So if this is in some way a way to bring music to another audience, and like you said earlier in the show about maybe this is a ripple effect where it's spreading out and it's carrying on this long tradition of these sounds that I, you and I find solace in and maybe other people will too that didn't know. You know, I had friends I've grown up with and contacted me recently. They're like, what is dub music, you know? So it's obviously still very much underground in a lot of ways. Um, and if it can come out and this be the way, you know... I just think that like having something that's an alter ego and something that's not me, the Chris Harford singer songwritery guy, to market is a lot of fun and it's just something different. It's like, Oh yeah, I can get behind this mysterious character and what is it exactly? Just like you said, like what is this? And it can probably be a lot of things, you know.
5: Yeah, I love that. I love everything about the concept of it is removing all the variables that maybe people hold you know, bias or judgment or whatever it is, and just letting the art speak for itself with some inexplicable uh, representation visually that embodies a whole lot that's rooted in it. So,
1: yeah, I'm just I'm just learning about MF Doom. You know, he just passed away, but like reading about his career and how he got developed that mask and what it meant and what he could oh, do behind, behind the mask. Like that's all new to me, and that's exactly the idea. Really, kind of like you're behind the mask, so you're free to explore maybe the darker crevices of your subconscious or whatever it is you need to do to just work it out.
5: Um, man, I am I, so excited for you that you just found doom. Like, oh, my God, it's a it's a, a boundless well of, I, of, of to just, yeah, buckle up, man. You're stoked. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it, it sounds like it. Like, I had no idea. So, yeah, awesome. We get another thing to, like, sink my teeth into.
5: Exactly. And that's the beauty of music is the connectivity of everything and just how like, you know, it took his death and your interest in masking with regard to the music that will like propel you into this catalog that uh, honestly is, is a unicorn and not just in hip hop, but in music itself. And, and much like you, he touched a lot of different genres and lives and collaborated with, you know, bold font names yet, uh, remained this, uh, sort of, it, Inaccessible and uh, mysterious till the very end. So much so that he had been dead for two months before the rest of us found out, which is remarkable in this day and
1: age. Right, right. It is remarkable, and then it also ties into all those early reggae covers with cartoons, you know, like action figures or Space Invaders, or you know, and the P-Funk drawings and all that kind exactly. of concept of have, having this character, these characters. Yeah, so, man. You know, it, in the process of each musician that might partake in, in Blanc to Blanc would have a created costume for them that reflects their spirituality and their personality in some way, in that, in that way.
5: Right on. Well, dude, I really appreciate your time, and, of course, all the stories and reflections, perspectives. I got an education, uh, and hopefully my listeners will feel the same. But... Uh, well- The last thing I I always ask is uh, for, like, a recommendation of sorts. Um, If there's an artist, an album, a song, something that's really, like, getting you through, that you're finding the solace and comfort in at this moment or in general, kind of like an off-the-cuff thing, don't think too hard about it.
1: Welding by you, Roy.
5: Uh, Rest in peace. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah, man.
5: Yeah, welding. Yeah, oh, heavy
1: tune. (laughs) Yeah, that song, that song has been slaying me lately.
5: Well, yeah, we'll definitely uh, link to that.
1: I want to give a shout out to Sarah McConnell for linking us. And, you know, obviously, music is a vital part of our lives yours, mine, hers. And it's what's getting us through all this craziness. So I'm very grateful to talk to you and to know that the music's connecting in such a manner and to her for making this connection. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time and, and caring and spinning the records and, and, and spreading the words.
5: Oh, man, agreed. Sarah is a gem. And I'm grateful that you connected us, too. And thank you for the kind words. And, yeah, man, we left a lot on the table. Yours is a long story and journey, so we'll do it again down the road, I'm sure. Well,
1: good. Well, next time we can talk about my relationship with songwriting with the Irish poet Paul Muldoon and that whole chapter, so we can save that for the next time.
5: Yeah, I would love to hear all about it. Please do. Okay,
1: good. All right, my brother. You have a great day, and again, thank you. Thanks. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks, Brian. Take it easy. Peace. He's
0: Yes, indeedy. I want to say thank you and a deep bow of gratitude to my man, Chris Harford. Wow. Again, totally humbled and blown away by that profound powwow. It was so rewarding and fulfilling just to have that conversation. And I'm honored and really grateful to be able to uh, broadcast it out into the interwebs. With that, uh, I want to say, uh, check out Blanc du Blanc. You're here in Dub, and they have the album, the Blanc album, and then they have the EP of Wind of Change. You heard all about that stuff. I can't. Wait. I want to check in with uh, with Chuck Treese. Maybe one day I'll have Marco and or Joe on the show, but this was. Just, a, just a banger, and I hope everybody that's listening uh, stuck it out. Obviously, made it this far. Uh, give thanks for everyone checking in and supporting the Up for Life podcast. I have to switch it up a little bit on the vibe junkie jam of the week because uh, I got penalized for playing a song a long time ago. The pod was off the air for a few days, and uh, I might even, uh, you know, we'll see. I got to figure out what's kosher and what's not but i'm gonna play something from Blanc to blank i mean you heard the way these cats talk about chris harford as a songwriter as a musician as a conduit so i would love to play like some of his singer songwriter stuff or whatever but i encourage you to check that out chris harford chris harford band of changes i'm just not sure if you know what label or what's what and i've got to be more careful i'm not sure how many people actually need to hear the songs on the podcast i can mention them so leaf of fall i would play in its entirety um you can find that on uh chris harford's uh spotify but I'm going to play Cometh dub, which is the last dub on Blanc du Blanc's album, The Blanc Album. It's just the heaviest fucking dub. Just uh, all the cats. You know, you hear about who's all the cooks in the kitchen on this. Dana Colley and uh, Marco Benevento and Chuck Treese. And, and it's not even sure who's on the Cometh dub. But just the not even going to try. I'm just going to play the dub. I play it on vinyl all the time here at the crib, and it's medicine. So Blanc du Blanc on Soul Selects, the Blanc album, the vibe junkie jam, like we always do about this time. And that'll be episode 44 of the Up Full Life podcast. Check us out, patreon.com backslash up Life. Rate, review the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcast, or your podcast platform of choice. Send me an email: begets at upfullife.com. Goodbye. Job bless, and we'll see you next time.